Philippians chapter 3, please. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you that we can sing of your grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ, the comfort that is ours through Christ, the treasure that is ours in Christ. Thank you that we can also acknowledge the temporal things that fade away and the things that should not be our focus as we sing. We pray that in reality, in truth, we would, would truly believe that Christ, your Son, our Savior, is the greatest and most enduring treasure. And we pray that as we consider your word and worship you in your word, that your spirit would work in our lives for your glory, for our good, and for a clear proclamation of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the years, our nation has seen its share of major financial scandals. Some of you will remember the rise and fall of Enron. Most of us will remember when Bernie done made off with our money. Uh, and then, of course, there are lesser known scoundrels through the years that have dealt with individual people, less um, a lower scale. But in these situations, people invest their hard-earned money trying to set themselves up for their retirement years only to realize that their money has been mismanaged or flat-out stolen. What seemed to be an investment in their future was only leaving them empty and without resources. As we approach this next section of the book of Philippians, I I believe that Paul is warning the church. Paul is warning the church not to experience this same type of fraud on a spiritual front. Let's take a look, please. We're going to read verses 1 through 8 of Philippians chapter 3. We are not going to cover 1 through 8 this morning. But verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing, things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship God by the Spirit of God, or who worship by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, 
I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What we want to understand here in this section and it will be our refrain for the upcoming weeks, is that gospel culture exalts God. Gospel culture exalts God. A gospel culture, we've been talking about that for several weeks now. A gospel culture is not a world culture. It's not even a church culture. It's a culture that comes out of an understanding and a proclamation and an embrace of the Gospel. That He is everything. He has supplied everything. He has done everything. And I am a recipient of that glorious grace from God through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. He begins chapter 3 with a, a quick word. Finally, and this, this word finally has been the favorite word of many teachers who would like to excuse themselves for being long-winded. They'll note, see, Paul said finally at chapter 3 and verse 1, and then again at chapter 4 and in verse 8, and he kept right on writing. Uh, there's no definitive reason that we have or, or determination as to why Paul says finally here and then goes on for another 40% of, of the book. Uh, and it certainly wasn't to uh, give me or anyone else an excuse to, to keep on going after we say we're concluding. Perhaps, perhaps it's just another way that we see the working of God with the fingerprints of man. Perhaps it's just another way of Paul writing a letter to someone thinking, that, that's about it. I'm ready to wrap it up. When prompted by the Spirit that that was not the conclusion yet. And so we, we recognize the possibilities of God just uh, leaving that there for us so we can understand that this is not just a human penman running the show, but instead it is a divine letter And God was not quite done communicating to the Philippian church nor to us what He had intended to convey. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. That statement will govern our view of this next section. He introduces this command. Rejoice in the Lord. And I want to ask you a question. What makes your heart glad? What brings joy to your inner being? Remember this, all physical blessings, all physical blessings fade into the background when times get tough. All physical blessings tend to be less and less significant to us when the most important elements of our lives feel like they're under attack. I want us to look at a couple of psalms, please. Take a look 
at Psalm 32. Physical blessings produce temporal rejoicing. At the end of Psalm 32, and at the beginning of Psalm 33, the psalmist David makes some important statements for our consideration. Verse 10 of Psalm 32. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now Psalm 33 and verse 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Now, back in Psalm 32 and verse 10, if the contrast were, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but great bounty surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord, then we would say, all right, well, physical blessings are helpful, and physical blessings can sustain us during difficulty. That's not what he says. He says there's something else. Steadfast love. Steadfast love. A continuance, an enduring, a non-fading, an unending love surrounds the one who trusts in God. Our rejoicing in the Lord is not because God gives us little gadgets. Gadgets and gizmos aplenty. Who's it's and what's it's galore? You want thingamabobs? I've got 20. But who cares? No big deal. I want more. Remember that one? Anyone? I don't know. Little Mermaid. I'm dating myself. Regardless, that's not what cheers our heart. Then maybe temporarily when we get a new thing. You know, my son bought me a, an iWatch for my birthday. That's really cool. This is great. I love playing with it. It's, it's neat. But like, that's not going to sustain me when bad things happen. If I, if, I, if I find out my wife has cancer or terminal cancer, I don't think that the iWatch is going to sustain me through that time. What do you think? What will? I know the one who created my wife and me. I know the one who sustains my wife and me. I know the one who loves my wife and me. I know the one who has saved my wife and has saved me. I know Him. And so, in the face of the most difficult times, what do you hold on to? Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord, not in your stuff. Look at Psalm 43. I'm going to read the whole psalm. Five verses. The psalmist writes, Praise, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then, after your light, after your truth lead me, after I'm brought into this understanding of where real sustenance, 
real substance. A true foundation is when your light and your truth guide me to that which is tangible and real and enduring, then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He's, he's Really, he's pointing a desperate situation, isn't he? He's painting this desperate picture of how difficult his surroundings were. There were people rising up against him, and he felt, because of this oppression, he felt, even in his prayers, God, where are you right now? Where, why aren't you sustaining me? Why aren't you answering me? Why are you taking this out of the way? But before God ever does take the situation out of the way, the truth of the Lord, the word of the Lord, carried the psalmist to the reality that I don't need a problem-free life to trust God. In fact, if I have a problem-free life, how do I even know whether I do trust God? The truth leads us to a foundation that is solid and a place where we can rejoice when everything feels against us. Drugs leave a person needing more. Alcohol leaves a person with a hangover. Babies grow up and move on. Vacations end. People die. Money runs out. Vehicles rust. What what is going to sustain you when all of your tricks to try to satisfy your heart run dry? What will sustain you then? Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. You know that God is immutable. You know what that word means? Unchanging. Do you know that God is eternal? No beginning and no end. God is infinite. There is no exhausting who He is. And there is no forgetting what He has done. You and I need a source of rejoicing that is not temporal, but that lasts in the midst of the most dire times. And Paul is pointing us there. Head back, please. Head back to Philippians chapter 3. Only one thing endures. Are you one of God's children? Has He redeemed you for Himself? If He has, this can never be taken away from you. This, this is an unchanging blessing. No matter how bad things get on earth, if you belong to God, you can rejoice in Him. Paul doesn't leave us in the dust regarding ways toward this rejoicing. 
He starts to paint a picture for us or to, to instruct us on ways toward this kind of a sustaining joy in the Lord. He tells us, beginning in verse 1, take a look please. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Safe to do what? To keep pointing you in the right direction. I'm writing something to you. It's not a problem. And it's safe. It's a surety. It's something that's confirming for you. What is he, what is he writing? He's writing the truths of the Word. And so what we want to notice in the next period of time are three aids to rejoicing in the Lord. Three aids, helpers, to rejoicing in the Lord. The first aid for rejoicing in the Lord is repetition of truth. Repetition of truth. You've heard it said, I would assume, that repetition is the... Maybe you haven't heard it. Mother of learning. Repetition is the mother of learning. I don't know what the father is. Probably the one that whacked you. But repetition (laughs) is the mother of learning. Uh, so, So Paul is willing to reiterate truth and so also is the Apostle Peter. I want you to take a look, please, at 2 Peter chapter 1. Beginning in verse 5, Peter writes, verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours, or are coming, springing forth from you, you can translate it that way as well, and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore, therefore, I intend always, always, to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of what? Reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to, may be able at any time, to recall, recall these things. And so he's talking to them about the very foundational things of life. You see, these qualities that, that are listed from verses 5 through, through 7, they don't save you. Those qualities are not something whereby if you will just work on each of these qualities and, and master them, God will save you. He's already spoken in the, in the first few verses about the, the gracious endowment that is ours through Christ. So he's already in, invested these things in you. These are manifestations, each of these qualities, manifestations of God's working in you. 
And he says, when these things are manifest, whether it be love, brotherly kindness, uh, affection, whatever, whatever the particular virtue, when these things are, are demonstrated in your life, they, they confirm that God has called you, saved you, and they guarantee you the demonstration of God's work. And you guarantees, not because you're doing something to earn it, but because you're displaying this, a guarantee that you'll have a rich and glorious and abundant entrance into heaven. He's talking about the gospel here. You can't get to heaven outside of the gospel, right? Can you love your way to heaven? Can you virtue your way to heaven? No! However, the gospel that Jesus died on the cross because I'm a sinner and He bore the weight, the condemnation, the guilt, and the judgment for my sin on that cross, that God was satisfied with His death in my place by raising Him from the dead, God confirmed that Jesus' death was sufficient for, as a payment for my sin. The Gospel is the only thing that guarantees my entrance into heaven. But here, a manifestation of God's working through us that as a result of the Gospel guarantees my entrance into heaven. And Paul, Peter says, this is of such importance that I don't mind reminding you. Listen, you can call me a broken record all you want. I'm going to keep on telling you because you and I forget the most important things. Don't deceive yourself, my friend. I care for you. I care for you. Here's the natural way. We come, we, we've, we come broken to our Savior because we recognize we're sinful. We come broken and we recognize that Jesus in His death, burial, and resurrection was enough to save us. And we cling to Him. And we we praise God for the salvation He's given to us. And, And we would be glad to tell everyone, I'm only saved by grace. Here's what happens. We read the Bible. Good, we ought to. And we see all these things about God, that God tells us about the Christian life and how it should look. And we say, I, I need to do that. And we, we should say that. But somewhere along the way, what happens in our minds is, look at how good I'm doing. If you were speaking proper English, you'd say, look at how well I am doing. But we most, most of us don't. Look at how good I'm doing. I've really come so far. I used to do X, Y, and Z, and now I do A, B, and C. Aren't I something? No, you wouldn't quite say it that way. But you start to look around at the blessings in your life. You think, oh, look, God gave me this job. He gave me this spouse. He gave me these children. He's he's, he's taking care of my needs. And you think, I must be doing something right. And I want to tell you, that is horrible theology. The other side of the coin is, Oh, I lost my job. I have all these physical problems. I must be doing something wrong. God, what am I doing wrong? Won't you show me what I'm doing wrong so I don't have to deal with this anymore? That also is horrible theology. 
It is not to say that we ought not strive toward what is written in the Scriptures. Why would we bother reading it if that were not our end goal? To see these things come to pass in our lives. The problem is, we skip the most important step. God, I see. I see what you want here. And I look in the mirror. And I see my daily life. And I think, boy, what a failure you are. God, do this in me. Do this. I don't want to have my way. I don't want to be me. Me rots. We skip that important step of humility, recognizing that my efforts end with a spiritualized or churchized character. Well, you can be a really good churchgoer without the Spirit. But you cannot manifest the fruit. I cannot manifest the fruit of the Spirit without the Spirit. And so Peter is building on his theology of grace in verses 3 and 4, a manifestation of God's character in our lives that ought to be evidenced that confirms our calling and election and our expectation of a grand entrance into heaven. And he says, I'm going to keep telling you this. I'm going to remind you, and I'm going to remind you so that you are recalling this whether I'm here or not. And this, in many ways, is what Paul is doing as we head back to Philippians chapter 3. Paul is letting us know If we are going to rejoice in the Lord, it's going to be because we are reminded, reminded, and reminded some more of adversaries. Throughout the pastoral letters, which are 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus, there is a regular emphasis on sound doctrine. All believers need to be constantly reminded of the truths of the gospel. So our first aid toward rejoicing in the Lord is repetition of truth. Maybe you think every now and then, well, I read all the way through the Bible last year or over two years or whatever it is that your Bible reading plan is. I read through that. I want to do something different, which is fine. There's no Bible verse that says you have to read through the Bible in a year or in two years, okay? The more you read of the Scriptures, the more you know God, yes? Because that's where he's revealed. But there's no, there's no plan that is the sanctified plan and your plan is bad. But if you ever get to the point where I read that before, I'm all set, I'm going to read something else, you've got some real problems. If we are going to rejoice in the Lord, it's going to be because we are reminded of who he is from the word and from other believers in Jesus Christ who are in the word. A second aid toward our rejoicing in the Lord is found in verse 2, and that is recognition of opposition. Recognition of opposition. And before we read this, I want for us to recognize that Paul turns the tables on the religious world. (coughs) He is trying to help us to see the radical nature of the gospel. And before we even read this passage, Paul is not just casually 
trying to send out insults. He is conveying the worthlessness of fleshly attempts at spiritual endeavors. He is conveying the worthlessness of of fleshly attempts at spiritual endeavors. And so he says in verse 2, look out for, or beware of, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil workers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He has done some really great work to help us to see a night and day contrast between life in the Spirit and life according to religion. And what's very interesting, the religious people look and say, the dogs, the evildoers, and those who need to be mutilated, circumcised. They're casting judgment and casting responsibilities and focusing attention on actions whereas God focuses in on redemption. Look out for the dogs. Now we're not talking about the cute little house pets that you have. A little cute thing sits on your lap and licks your face. Can you let some dog lick your face? Something is not right. Please, don't let your dog lick your plates either and then use them to serve to other people on those plates. It's not right. You should never do this. Don't think of those cute little pets, the lap dogs. Think more along the lines of coyotes. Isn't it so cute? Come on over. Is that how you deal with the coyotes? Probably not. We're talking about scavenger dogs. They're filthy and disgusting and people don't like them. Beyond that, think about how the Jews looked at Gentiles. What did they call them? Dogs. Listen to this interaction between the Lord Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman. It's on the screen. In Mark 7, 26 and 27, now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, if we ended right here, we would say, boy, that kind of wasn't very nice. Jesus was teaching something, because you know what ends up happening is he ends up casting the demon out of out of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, as a way to tell the Gentiles, I'm here to minister to you and to give the good news of the gospel to you, and to show the the Jews the gospel was for you, and you've rejected it. The gospel is for the world, which is why the Bible talks about those who disobey the gospel. The gospel is a cry that goes out to you today. That Jesus died to pay for sin. And that his payment for sin is a sufficient payment. It's one that that has an eternal consequence. And that his righteousness can be placed on your account. 
if you trust Christ alone as your Savior. Your sin can be removed forever. His righteousness attributed to you forever. The gospel goes forth. There is a call from the gospel today to you. The Lord Jesus, in dealing with her, lets her know, hey, listen, you are unclean. You are unfit in accordance with the Judaistic system. So Paul now is saying that mingling the ceremonial laws, ceremonies, religion, mingling the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament into the life of the church after the cross is to make oneself unclean, unfit, a dog. Beware of those who tell you you can gain God's approval by doing X. Beware of those who tell you you can gain favor with God or a place in heaven if you will just do such and such. God says they're trying to get you from being a dog into a situation of cleanliness before the Lord, but actually they're the dogs that are on the outside looking in. So it's not just an insult. He's really cutting them to the quick. He moves on from that, and he says, look out for the evildoers. When we think of evildoers, we think of those who break the law, right? It's true. Paul is not thinking so much about those who are breaking the law per se, but about those who are mingling elements of the Old Testament law into the church, And he's telling them that these deeds that you are trying to draw out of others, these deeds are are in fact evil doing themselves. Now we can see this from many scripture passages. Let me just remind you of a couple of them. While you turn to Colossians chapter 1. While you're turning, I'm going to remind you of two other passages. They'll be on the screen for your benefit, for our benefit. In Isaiah 64, and verse 6, the Bible says this, We have all become like one who is unclean. And all, all our righteousness or our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities like the winds, like the wind takes us away. The only way Folks, that we produce good works, which, which ought to be in our lives, right? The only way that we produce good works that are truly good is by God's grace. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and verse 8, the Bible says this, And God, God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things, you may abound in what? Abound in what? Every good work. How does that good work come? God causes grace to abound, and guess what abounds from us? Good work. So who's doing it? He is. Through us. You see, we, we can't now then cling to this and say, well, 
God says he's going to do this, so I'm just going to sit at home on my chair and watch Netflix. It's interesting, this is an aside, probably shouldn't get too far off in this. It has become like an accepted thing to binge watch things. Like, I'm thinking years ago that that would have been frowned upon even by the world. You binge watch? Ooh, don't you have anything else to do with your time? And now we like actually advertise, you can get Netflix or Hulu and you can binge watch blah, blah, blah. And you're like, really? I'm supposed to feel good about that? That kind of makes me feel bad. I I probably shouldn't have Netflix if it just makes me binge watch. Of course, it doesn't make me binge watch. Um, Nonetheless, um, when... When God says he's going to cause good works to abound from us because he has abounded grace into our lives, it doesn't mean I sit back and do nothing. It means, okay, Lord, how, how do you want to use me? How, how, do you, how do you want to cause this good work to come forth? And I wonder what they look like. I have a question for you. Do you where, where would you find out what the good works that God is going to cause to abound in your life, where are you going to find out what they look like? Where? Oh, does God tell us? He might tell us something about these good works, doesn't he? If we don't read our Bibles, we're not going to know what they look like. And so we, that's why we, we feast upon the word. God, what, what is my life supposed to look like? How, how, how can I reflect Christ in my life? Well, the Bible gives us great descriptions of what that looks like in the life of the one who is yielded to the Spirit. Causes grace to abound. Colossians 1 in verse 10. The context starts in verse 9, so for the sake of context, let's, let's look at verse 9 as well. It says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled or controlled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of God, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every what? Good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Verse 11, May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. This this text is so grace-filled, you can't get away from it. Filled with the knowledge of His will. right? Controlled by a knowledge of His will. And then, so that you may walk worthy. That's the, the, the result of, of knowing, being controlled by God's will, is that you do live a life that's worthy of the Lord, that results in fully pleasing Him, and fruitful, God's fruit, in every good work. And so, like we know where this comes from. We, we know where good work comes from. But the, the opponents those who oppose the gospel of grace want you to do X, Y, and Z. And what Paul says, all of those works, those things make you an evildoer. If you think by doing good things you are going to gain acceptance with God, those good things have become evil things. Because you're trusting in the wrong thing. Rejoice in your good works. That's not how he starts. Rejoice in the Lord. I want to remind you 
of the truth of the Gospel again and again. Look out for dogs. Those that want to keep the bad people out are the bad people themselves. Look out for evil doers. The ones that want you to do all these things to, to not be an evildoer, they are the evildoers. And then he says, look out for the mutilators. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now you know what they're doing, right? They're just talking about circumcision. We don't want to have a conversation about circumcision. It's uncomfortable in its actuality and in its discussion. But it has to do with the foreskin of a male's sexual organ. Okay, Is everyone clear on, on what circumcision is? Do we have to talk any more about it? Okay? There's, there's something that needs to be cut off. And in order to do this, or, or, or the result of this, is now you are ceremonially clean. Now you are in good standing. You are a member of the covenant community now that you have been circumcised. And, so, and if you, as a, a Christian, refuse circumcision, you are not going to gain all of the blessings that are coming to you in Christ. That's what the opponents are saying. It's not what I am saying. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul, again, is turning the tables on him. He's letting them know, your, your ritual of circumcision that was, you can find it in the Scriptures, he is equating their insistence on circumcision with pagan rituals of cutting that were forbidden under the Old Testament law code. You hear what I just said? There are, you know, Leviticus talks about not, not cutting yourself. He's saying these, your, your insistence on circumcision falls under that category under the book of Leviticus that you're just trying to cut things to, gain a, uh, uh, to, to, to follow suit with some religious endeavor. And just, you're just mutilating the flesh. You're not accomplishing anything spiritual. The opponents were seeking to find joy or satisfaction in their own religious endeavors rather than in the divine Redeemer. Later on today, you can actually, you're interested in Colossians. I'm not going to say later on. Take a look at Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. He writes, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, those that are, that are proposing these kinds of traditional things, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Listen carefully to what he says in verse 23. These things have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, they don't produce a spiritual end. You could, you could have the most stringent list of convictions. You know what convictions are? Oh, I was reading, and God convicted me of this, and God convicted me of that. There's nothing wrong with that. But you could have the most lengthy list of convictions and, and seek to live out every one of those convictions that you have attained and still be just as rotten as when that whole list started. You know what happens to us? See, life in the Spirit, life lived under the, 
the surrender of our will to God the Spirit helps us to see our littleness, God's greatness, and then it results in fruit. When we live our lives in accordance to some standard that we have attained and and thought was good, what happens is we just swap sins. I don't go to that movie anymore. And I won't go to one of those, those bad rock concerts anymore. And I won't go into one of those clubs anymore or one of those pubs anymore. There's nothing wrong with any of those decisions. But if that is the substance of your walk with God, what's going to happen is you're just substituting the club for pride. The club for envy. The club for jealousy. The club for prominence. What difference does it make if you swap one sin for another? Well, there might be some some ramifications to one over the other, right? But I'm talking about on a spiritual front. There's not much difference. These lists do nothing to stop the indulgence of the flesh. So Paul says, you're just a mutilator of the flesh. You're not accomplishing spiritual work. Head back, please, to Philippians. We'll take just another couple of minutes here to consider this. It's an important contrast that he brings to the table in verse 3. So we've, we've looked at two helpers, aids, to rejoicing in the Lord. One is the reiteration or repetition of truth. The second was the re, uh, recognition of opposition, those that are trying to get us to do what, what they think are spiritual with fleshly means, and the result of that is only flesh. And now, it freeze up on you again? Time to get a new computer. Uh, the third aid is a realization of our identity. A realization of our identity. He says at the beginning of verse 3, for we are, we are the circumcision. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. We are the circumcision. He uses a play on words. You can't tell in in your English Bibles necessarily unless you think of mutilation of the flesh with circumcision. Uh, In the King James, it goes from circumcision of the circumcisors to the the concision. Beware of the concision. You know, trying to hold on to those endings because in the Greek, there are are two endings that, that are parallel to help us connect from verse 3, the end of verse 3 to the beginning of verse, excuse me, the end of verse 2 to the beginning of verse 3. We are the circumcision. Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is making this important point. It is not what you have done. It is what God has made you. It is not some religious act. It is the action of God in your life. The contrast is between action and redemption. What they think that they are accomplishing through regulation keeping, God has made us through redemption. Three times in the Old Testament, probably more, but three that I'm going to give you references to. Deuteronomy 10.16, Deuteronomy 30. 6 and Jeremiah 4 4 are places that the Old Testament speaks about 
circumcision of the heart. So in other words, now we're not talking about the fleshly appendage. Now we're talking about circumcised in truth. In Romans chapter 2, Paul writes of circumcision being a matter of the heart. And in Colossians chapter 2, Paul equates circumcision with redemption or salvation. So what happens spiritually to the person who embraces Jesus Christ as their Savior, not in a specific order, but here's what happens spiritually to the person who embraces Jesus Christ as their Savior. Ready? Their sins are forgiven. They're made alive spiritually. They receive the Holy Spirit. They're placed into the body of Christ. And very closely related to that, they are united together with Christ. I have to ask you a question because it's very important. Look at the screen. Can you do any of that? Can you make any of that come to pass? You have no shot, correct? This is Paul's point. They mutilate the flesh. We are the circumcision. God does this to us. He makes us alive. He forgives our sin. He gives us His Spirit. He has united us with Christ. So Christ's circumcision, Christ's obedience, Christ's life is my life. Because God has united me together with Him. This is supernatural. I can't do it, and I can't take credit for it. It's a work completely of God. God has made us something that we were not. And God has made us something that we could not make ourselves. He then gives three character traits. We're not going to look at all of them, just a glimmer. Three characteristics of those who are united together with Christ. Verse 3, This is what they look like. They worship by the Spirit of God. Secondly, they glory in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, they put no confidence in the flesh. See, worshiping God cannot be defined by one particular activity, and it is not confined to any particular place. Worship is done at all times and in all places. The question is, who or what am I worshiping? The Holy Spirit causes me, causes believers to proclaim Jesus is Lord. The Holy Spirit bears witness in my spirit and in the spirit of every believer that we are the sons of God. The Spirit of God cries out in us and through us, Abba. Father. There's this intimate, tender, unending relationship with God. And I know it. I know it. Because God's Spirit bears witness with my Spirit. We worship by the Spirit of God. I have to ask you, has your heart been strangely warmed? What do you mean strangely warmed? It's an old expression. Have you been in a situation where you just had this awe come over you? Now, that can happen in a, in a physical way over a physical thing. You see your child born, 
and like you're, you, there's, 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 there's no way to describe it. There is no way to describe when you first get your eyes on that child, and you're like your heart melts. Or uh, when, for, for, for other people, I, I remember when I was driving down the, I think it was Pacific Coast Highway, Big Sur, riding right along the water's edge, and you see this Pacific Ocean, and you see the, the side of, of the United States of America, and you see all the beauty around you, and you're, there's, there's, there's something that, that happens inside of you. All those things go away. But there's, there's another kind of having your heart strangely warmed that does something spiritually. That is, you recognize yourself to be a sinner. I can see that. And then you're presented with a solution to that sin. Instead of condemnation that I deserve for my sin, I see the salvation that God offers me through Jesus Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection. And there's, there's something that takes place inside of you that you're, you're, you're drawn to it and, and you respond. What do you respond with? Repentance of who I am. Repentance of my sin. That, that I recognize that all the things I've done, I, I owe a debt that I can't pay. So I turn from my sin and I turn to the Savior and I trust Christ. I, I recognize that what God has done is, is enough, it's sufficient, it's what I need. And God regenerates us. God gives us life. He brings us to faith in Himself. To have our heart strangely warmed is one thing. To have our heart stirred to embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior, that's another thing. And it results in eternal salvation. All of our efforts, all of our good deeds, all of our striving after obedience to a religious standard only results in condemnation. However, for those who have found themselves in Christ by God's grace, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you, are you investing in stocks that are a sham? A number of years ago, this is before I had children, my wife and I bought a computer. A little laptop. I was doing my ordination paper. But went to the, the, the store and bought a computer, and they had six months, same as cash, financing. I had the money for the, for the thing, but I thought, well, why give them the money now if I can give it to them in six months? So I bought it on credit, had the money in savings, and it was coming to that date that I needed to pay the bill. So I went to my banking establishment, went to the ATM. I can do this on my phone or my computer now. But then I went to the, the ATM and I, I transferred money from one account to the other. And I sent out the check and I was happy. And then a bill came in the mail. And it said, not only that I still owed all this money. There was a late fee, accrued interest, and a bounced check fee. What? And then I bounced several other checks. And I'm thinking, what? I, I don't know. No, this isn't how... This, no. Here's what I did. When I went to the bank that day, I transferred money from my checking account 
into my savings account instead of savings account to checking account. And so, after that transaction, and I sent out those checks to pay my bills, they started bouncing like crazy because I took it in the wrong direction. I had everything that I needed to pay all those bills and more. Plenty of money was available to pay all my bills. But I, I used a, a bankrupt account. Friend, there's a day that your debt, your debt will be held against you. I don't know when that day is coming. I want to tell you, there is sufficient funds in God's bank account to deal with your sin. But if you keep drawing on your own checking account, you're going to find yourself in a sad and horrific condition when you face the judge. He's done it all. It is available to you. Trust Christ. Turn from yourself. Turn from your ways. Turn from your sin. Trust Christ. He has done it all. And there are church after church all around the world that will tell you ways you can gain approval with God. And they are gaining you a bank account that has no funds in it. The only one that has anything that will survive this world and make it to the judgment seat of Christ are the funds that God offers through Jesus Christ. Has your debt been paid? We are the circumcision. We are united to Christ. We are the true Christians. Not because we have done X, Y, and Z deeds, but because God has made us alive through Jesus Christ. And that can be true of you. Trust Christ, today, let's pray. Father, never, never let us feel comfortable about our own ways. Never let us feel comfortable about our own credit, our own works. Help us to yield ourselves to You, to recognize that any good work that is done will only be done through Your power. Never let us be like the evil workers who think they can gain your approval with good work. Help us, Father, to rejoice in you, to worship through your Spirit, and to rejoice in Christ Jesus, and to never put any confidence in our flesh. Do this, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.